Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Well, good evening, friends. This is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. I've got some uh, spooky stories for you tonight, uh, including one of my own. Now, anybody that follows my Facebook page knows that I posted this yesterday, but it's such a weird story, I want to get it out to the listeners, too. Yesterday afternoon, I went to the grocery store and, and bought some items, and when I came home, I offloaded from the trunk of the car to the front porch. When I got everything onto the porch, then I went up on the porch to pick it up and put it in the house. Well, I had bought a bottle of cooking oil, and when I set it on the porch, it slid partially out of the bag. Well, I knew what was the next step in that parade, and I got up on the porch, and I started picking up bags, and the oil slipped completely out and lay there on the porch. I took the other bags on in the house and came back and the oil that we have we have stairs coming up to our porch and I have rails on them and at the top of the rails there's like extra pieces of wood like you would put little statuettes at the top of the stairs but there's nothing there there's just flat wood and that oil was sitting on that platform about four feet away from where it had slipped out of the bag. Now, I am home alone, and the only other living thing that was out there with me was my cat Jethro, and Jethro is not the type to lend a hand. Not that he really could, you know, no opposable thumbs, really. But that was really spooky to me, so when I brought the oil in the house, I put it on the table, and I said, if you stay there, I'm fine. If I find you someplace else, we got problems. Well, anyway, tonight here in South Texas, we've just undergone a thunderstorm. So if I go si... No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> if, I was going to say, if we go silent, you know what happened. I'm sorry, I've got a throat lozenge in my mouth because you can hear my voice is already starting to act up. I don't know what allergens are in the air right now, but whatever's been in the air for about the last month is kicking my behind like you would not believe. Well, let's get on into the story, shall we? Start with Turnpike Terror in West Virginia. 
This is the West Virginia Turnpike Interstate 77 between Princeton and Charleston. The West Virginia Turnpike was plagued with problems from the very beginning. In the early 20th century, the very mountains that made the mountain state unique also cut off much of the state's population from the outside world. To rectify this, the state looked into a major north-to-south thoroughfare between two major cities. After a route was chosen, construction involved literally moving mountains at tremendous cost. By the time it opened in 1954, the project's price amounted to $133 million, around $1.5 million per mile over two years. But the staggering statistics don't stop there. Construction required the movement of 33 million cubic yards of earth 17 million pounds of dynamite, 60% of excavation through rock, 116 bridges within the road's 88 miles, and sadly, five workers were lost during the project. As it opened, some even deemed the highway 88 miles of miracle, though that positive image did not last for long. Criticism followed with the two-lane road being called the Road to Nowhere by the Saturday Evening Post, as it became packed with the increased traffic brought to it by the interstate highway system, even more scorn was heaped on the highway. With the traffic and congestion also came a sharp increase in deaths on the road. By 1975, the toll stood at 278 fatalities. During the late 1970s and into the 80s, the road was expanded into a four-lane highway which has eased some of the traffic woes, though congestion still remained a problem. Another issue that arose, although the state government could not have foreseen it, was ghosts. By 1971, tales had been told for years about ghostly hitchhikers along the road's route. An article appearing in the Martinsville Bulletin of Virginia stirred some interesting commentary among West Virginia newspapers. The article reports that the Associated Press reported that a West Virginia radio station reported that witnesses have encountered a ghostly hitchhiker on the turnpike. According to the AP, as reported by a West Virginia radio station, 22 motorists on the turnpike between Princeton and Bluefield, and this is at the southern end of the turnpike, have reported they picked up a hitchhiking man who later vanished from their cars. Yep, you heard that correctly. The man just vanished from their vehicles, in some cases, while they were traveling at 65 miles an hour. Some motorists even reported the car's seat belt was still hooked together on the front seat after the man disappeared. Most of the stories I've ever heard about the vanishing hitchhiker was that they got into the back of the car. According to the radio station, the neatly dressed man got into the cars when motorists stopped, but said nothing. But in some reports, he later spoke one sentence, Jesus is coming, and with that he vanished. Earlier that month, a newspaper received a message on its reader tip line. This is what it said. This is Charlie Jackson, City Councilman at Large, Beckley, West Virginia. Something happened to me not too long ago, and people have been asking about it since. Also, it was announced on the radio that I was one of the witnesses that could explain it. It happened on the West Virginia Turnpike. Well, this is it. 
I was going down the turnpike and I saw a hitchhiker. I picked up this hitchhiker and I had reached the climax of 60 miles an hour when this gentleman said to me, Jesus is coming soon. And then he poof, disappeared. Where he went to and how he left, only God knows. But I do know that it is mighty strange. There were no witnesses, no warlocks, no magic, but something is going on. There is a change that should be made in everyone's life. And that is my story. It is said that the reporters who listened to the recording were familiar with Councilman Jackson's voice and said the voice on the recording was not his. While they also noted that the story was a thin tale with an evangelistic bent, the story does seem to bear the hallmarks of more recent stories from the turnpike. In the intervening years, several state troopers have reported experiences here, including one who discovered a little girl who appeared lost and wandering on the side of the road. After picking up the unusually quiet child and putting her in the back seat of his car, the driver glanced in his rearview mirror and was shocked to discover the child had vanished. Another trooper encountered a pedestrian along the turnpike and arrested him, as pedestrians are forbidden from walking along the road. Placing the handcuffed man in the back seat of his patrol car, the officer headed back to headquarters. At some point during the drive, the trooper looked in the rearview mirror to find the back seat was empty. The pedestrian had simply vanished, but he left the handcuffs on the seat. A local blogger writes in her blog of her own experience. She and her mother were traveling along the turnpike when they passed a scraggly-looking young man wearing dark clothing and carrying an olive-green, army-like sack. He was standing in a particularly lonely area of the interstate, and after passing him, they looked in the rearview mirror to see the figure had vanished. They turned their car around and did not see anyone along that same lonely stretch of the interstate. Folklorist Dennis Dietz posits in his The Greenbrier Ghost and Other Strange Stories that the road cuts along two creeks where tragedies have occurred. Along both Paint and Cabin Creeks, there were many mines where miners were killed in accidents. He also notes that both creeks have experienced flooding that have killed residents in the area. During the turnpike's construction in the 50s, there was also a number of old cemeteries that were moved. Perhaps these hitchhiking spirits are trying to find their way back to their earthly remains. There is an urban legend that has been labeled the vanishing hitchhiker, and I would attribute these types of stories and sightings to the urban legend. But a more familiar story for you ghost story fans out there, the story of Resurrection Mary around Chicago is probably the most famous vanishing hitchhiker one. Although that story has been changed and retold and retold and rechanged and all messed up, the reporting method thereof is often referred to as a friend of a friend. Hey, you know, I had this friend of a friend who told me about this story, or I heard this from a friend of a friend. It's never anybody you can track down. Here's a host of stories from Georgetown, South Carolina. The Harriet Tarbox House, and I hope I'm saying that right, it was formerly the Harbor House Bed and Breakfast, and it was private. Atop a bluff overlooking the Sampit River is the Harriet Tarbox House, topped with a distinctive red roof that can be seen from Winya Bay. Constructed around 1765, 
The house was the home of Dr. Charles Fife, F-Y-F-F-E, a Scottish-born physician and planter who also constructed the brick warehouse across the street. Just past the house is the small marina that was created by him as well. During the dismal days of the American Revolution, Dr. Fife remained loyal to the British Crown and oversaw a Loyalist hospital for refugees in Charleston. After the British surrender at Yorktown, the doctor faced deportation for his loyalties. In his appeal, he argued that he had treated wounded patriots as well. He was allowed to stay, although his estate and properties were seized. Remaining loyal to the crown, he made his way to colonial India, where he served as a physician before succumbing to madness. He was committed to a mental asylum in Calcutta, where he lingered until his death in 1810. A couple of years after Dr. Fife's death in India, his former home and docks became entangled in another legend. In December of 1812, the lovely Theodosia Burr Alston, the wife of the newly sworn governor of South Carolina, Joseph Alston, may have stayed in the home before boarding the schooner Patriot, headed to New York to visit her father. Theodosia was the daughter of the disgraced former Vice President Aaron Burr. Serving under President Thomas Jefferson, Burr was suspected of treasonous acts and was arrested in the wilds of the Alabama Territory. He was carried to Richmond, Virginia, where he was put on trial. Though he was acquitted of all the charges, Burr sought refuge in Europe for several years before returning to New York in 1812, just before the outbreak of war between the Americans and the British. Again. Burr's daughter, married to wealthy South Carolina planter Joseph Alston, remained in America during her father's exile in Europe. Theodosia waited until December, after her husband's inauguration as governor, to travel to New York to see him. After the birth of her son, Aaron Burr Alston, Theodosia's health had deteriorated that it got worse when the little boy died from malaria in June of 1812 at the age of 10. Therefore, travel for Theodosia would be difficult on her health, not to mention the risks of travel. While the two-week carriage ride from South Carolina to New York would be extremely taxing, travel by sea also proved dangerous especially now that the country was at war with Britain. Indeed, stormy winter seas and the threat of pirates also presented their dangers. As Governor Alston could not leave the state during wartime, he engaged a friend, Dr. Timothy Green, to accompany his ailing wife on her journey. Passage was secured on the schooner, the Patriot, which had been working as a privateer. The vessel carried guns and was authorized to attack British ships. Before her departure on New Year's Eve, 1812, Theodosia, accompanied by her husband, Dr. Green and servants, traveled to Georgetown from her husband's plantation, the Oaks, on the Waccamaw River. Local legend tells that the group was feeded at the Mary Mann House, that's M-A-R-Y-M-A-N, Mary Mann House that evening. Where the group stayed the night, however, is a matter of speculation, but some say that they did stay in Dr. Fife's former residence. The next morning, she boarded the Patriot at the docks just outside the house for her journey. The ship sailed out of Winya Bay, past the Georgetown Light on North Island, and into oblivion and legend. 
Whatever became of the Patriot and Theodosia after leaving Georgetown is unclear. Stories abound as to the fate of the Patriot and its passengers, often involving romantic hallmarks like piracy, plank walking, murder, wreckers on the North Carolina coast, and suicide. According to Richard Coates' Theodosia Burr Austin, Portrait of a Prodigy, recent research has uncovered facts relating to a severe storm off the North Carolina coast just days after the departure of the Patriot from Georgetown. Since her disappearance, tales have swirled about her tragic figure making appearances in spiritual form from the Charleston Battery up the coast from North Carolina's Outer Banks. In Georgetown, these tales are rife with Theodosia supposedly making an appearance at the Mary Manhouse where she ate her meal before leaving. Legend holds that she also makes appearances in and around the Harriet Tarbox House as well as being seen near Charles Fife's brick warehouse across the street. The house, however, also hosts another legend involving the daughter of a later resident. This young lady, which sources do not identify, like so many other local ladies, fell in love with the sea captain. And here we go. As fathers of this period were wont to do, he disapproved of the relationship. His daughter did find a way to communicate with her lover, though, by placing a lantern in one of the top floor windows of the house. Though the couple never married, the woman continued to hang the signal lantern, hoping for her lover's return. By the time of the Civil War, the woman lived alone as a spinster, surrounded by a pack of loyal dogs. She used the lantern hung in her high dormer to signal to blockade runners after the Union bottled up the bay. Not long after the war, she grew more and more reclusive. One evening, her dogs were heard baying throughout the night, so concerned neighbors broke into the house to find her body, surrounded by her beloved dogs. Her ghost is still supposedly seen, followed by spectral dogs, while the light still appears in the dormer window. The ghostly light is supposed to appear in one of the upper dormers. According to author Elizabeth Huntsinger, the high dormer was later used during Prohibition to signal to rum runners at work in the bank. One wonders if perhaps the story of the lantern in the dormer window is an invention of those smugglers. Certainly, it is a reason for locals not to question the odd light. Ghost stories are sometimes used to keep the curious at bay. Perhaps this is at work in this house on the bay. The Scarab Sting, also from Georgetown. Standing proudly on the corner of Front and St. James Street among the oak and moss-shaded residential section of Georgetown, the Cleland House, that's C-L-E-L-A-N-D, is among the oldest houses in town, having been built in 1737. From this corner, it's witnessed the whole pageant of American history, some of it even passing over its thresholds. During the American Revolution, the Prussian general Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben, French generals Baron Johann de Kalb and Gilbert de Motier, otherwise known as the Marquis de Lafayette, made visits to the house while they were giving aid to American forces. Later, Vice President Aaron Burr stayed at the home while visiting his daughter, Theodosia. The story behind this house reads very much like an old-fashioned ghost story. Ann Withers, possibly related to John Withers, who is listed on the historical marker in front of the house as one of the owners, fell in love with the dashing sea captain. And here we go. 
After one of his voyages, he returned to Georgetown and presented his fiancée with a rare gift, an ancient Egyptian bracelet which featured a series of scarabs. The scarab, you might well ask, is used as an ancient Egyptian amulet representing the common dung beetle, and it's found throughout the ancient world. Some scarabs were used as ornaments, while others were used as seals. During the era of the New Kingdom from 1535 to 1079 BCE, scarabs began to be included in the wrappings of mummies. To the ancient Egyptians, the lowly dung beetle symbolized resurrection and new life as it laid its eggs within animal dung, which it rolled into a ball. In the ancient religion, the beetle, personified as the god Kepri, was believed to roll the sun into the sky. Anne Withers, the blushing bride, saved the bracelet to wear on her wedding day. After putting on her wedding gown, she placed the bracelet on her wrist and carried on with her other preparations. Just as she was about to descend the staircase of the Cleveland house, the bride let out a scream and fell down the stairs. By the time she tumbled to the floor at the foot of the stairs, she was dead. Rushing to her side, her family discovered blood dripping from underneath the bracelet. When it was removed, the scarabs were found to have tiny legs that had dug into the bride's pale flesh. Leaving Georgetown soon after his fiancée's death, the young man took the bracelet to London, where it was examined by a chemist. He discovered that the legs on the scarabs had been rigged to open by the warmth from human skin. Each leg contained poison that would be injected into the hapless victim. He surmised that the bracelet had been made to afflict the person who stole the artifact from a tomb. Ever since Ann Withers' wedding day death, her form, still wearing nuptial white, has been seen in the gardens of the Cleveland House. A Firebrand Phantom, Athens, Georgia. The T.R.R. Cobb House. Several years ago, a visitor to the T.R.R. Cobb House was touring the upstairs alone when his cell phone rang. Answering it, the gentleman stepped into the room that had once been T.R.R. Cobb's bedroom. Suddenly, he heard a voice shushing him. The gentleman quickly headed back down the stairs. After sheepishly apologizing to the museum staff, the guest discovered that none of them had been upstairs or had shushed him. Perhaps Mr. Cobb wanted some undisturbed sleep. Cobb certainly may need sleep after living a vigorous life. Born in Jefferson County, Georgia, Thomas Reed Roots Cobb moved with his family to Athens at a young age. After graduating from the University of Georgia at the top of his class, he married the daughter of Judge Joseph Henry Lumpkin, later the Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, and served as a reporter for the same court producing the 15-volume Digest of the Statute Laws of the State of Georgia in 1851. In the tension-filled days leading up to the outbreak of the Civil War, Cobb's legal scholarship heartily defended the institution of slavery in his massive volume, An Inquiry into the Law of Negro Slavery in the United States of America. Angered by the election of Lincoln as president, Cobb vociferously denounced the federal government and began preaching the gospel of secession throughout the state. 
After the state's secession, he became a member of the Confederate Congress and set to work writing the Confederate Constitution as well as a new constitution for the state. Despite his efforts in creating the Constitution, Cobb resigned from the Congress in frustration from the lack of cooperation. He set about forming a military regiment that became known as Cobb's Legion. He led his legion in the Seven Days Battles, the Second Battle of Manassas, and Antietam, while defending the infamous Stonewall at Marie's Heights, south of Fredericksburg, in December of 1862. Cobb was mortally wounded when a Union shell exploded nearby. With his femoral artery severed, he bled out in the field hospital as his troops continued to hold their position behind the meager stone wall. Years later, Woodrow Wilson described the fiery Cobb. One figure in particular took the imagination and ruled the spirits of that susceptible people, the figure of Thomas R.R. R. Cobb. The manly beauty of his tall, athletic person, his frank eyes on fire, his ardor given over to a cause not less sacred, not less fraught with the issues of life and death than religion itself. His voice, musical and sure to find its way to the heart, made his words pass like flame from countryside to countryside. Thomas Cobb's majestic home had led a life that's equally as twisting and turning as the firebrand who lived there. The house started life as a much plainer federal-style home around 1839. It was purchased in 1842 by Cobb's father-in-law, who presented it, according to family lore, as a wedding present to his daughter and son-in-law. It was Cobb who added octagonal additions and columns, elevating the home's appearance in 1852. Throughout the first half of the 20th century, the house saw a variety of residents and uses, ranging from a boarding house to a fraternity house. It is from this period that the earliest report of paranormal activity was documented regarding the house, collected as part of the WPA Writers Project during the Great Depression. That account recalls the spirit of a gentleman wearing a gay dressing gown who is seen descending the stairs and sitting in front of the fire in the drawing room. In 1962, the house came under the ownership of the Catholic Archdiocese of Atlanta, who used the structure as a parish house, a rectory, and offices for St. Joseph's Catholic Church. During that time, two priests and several nuns living in the house had encounters with the man in gray who entered the library and stood by the fireplace. One priest recalled a fascinating moment in the house. The priests tended to accumulate newspapers on the back porch. After reading the papers, they were consigned to a stack that soon reached from floor to the ceiling. One day, the papers erupted into flame, and while the papers were burned, the house itself remained untouched and the fire extinguished itself miraculously. After serving the church, the dilapidated house was sentenced to demolition in 1984. But instead of resigning the house to the wrecking ball, the house was dismantled and moved from its original Prince Avenue location to Stone Mountain Park, just outside of Atlanta. The park intended to restore the home as part of its historic square, which contains a number of historic structures collected from with, throughout the state along with their accompanying ghosts. 
Instead, the Cobb house was put up on cinder blocks and sat unrestored for almost 20 years. With funding from the Watson Brown Foundation, the home was returned to Athens, having taken the scenic route from Prince Avenue to its new location on Hill Street, but not without some controversy. A 2004 article in the New York Times stirred the pot by enumerating Cobb's ardent positions on slavery and race, positions that do not mesh with the current atmosphere in modern Athens. Despite protests from throughout the city, the house was returned and restored. Throughout two house moves and a major restoration, spirits have remained active in the home. Staff members regularly hear the sounds of people entering the home during the day, only to discover there's no one there. They are also regularly treated to the sounds of footsteps and laughter when the house is quiet. One of the more amusing incidents took place one afternoon when an older couple was touring the house. Their tour was led by the education director who politely answered the question about if the house is haunted. The lady who asked responded that she would be freaked out if she saw a chandelier swinging on its own. Lo and behold, the chandelier in the front parlor was swinging so wildly when the trio entered that the education director had to physically stop it herself. An antique armoire in the hallway of the house has a door in its side that opens on its own. The furniture, which is original to the house, has an opening in the side that reveals a coat hook. At certain times of the year when the wood expands and causes difficulty in opening the door, it's found open anyway. There are also apparitions that have been seen by visitors and passers-by, including an elderly black woman and a little girl. No reports as to whether the gray-clad man has been seen in the house. Perhaps the firebrand phantom is too busy trying to rest in his bedroom. Well, that's all I have for this week, so I want to thank you for being along. Come back next week. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter has Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. On Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail, who does Aaron's Horror Show. Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, and on alternating Thursdays, we have Patrick Sean Jones with the Sandman Lullaby. And on the first Friday of the month, we have video reports from Full Dark Productions and The Witching Hour. Remember that you can go to your app store on either Apple or Android, download the RPA app, and when you open that up in your whatever you listen to the program on, you will not have to go looking for the shows. They will be right there all together. So look for that, the RPA app on your app stores. I hope you enjoy the show. Have a great week. Bye-bye.